Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the Ezra Klein Show. This episode, which is a bit out of sequence, uh, as you'll notice, is about what is going on, not just in the country, but in the world right now. As the outrage has spread over Donald Trump's executive order on immigrants and on refugees from the seven majority Muslim countries, and particularly from Syria, where he's banned refugees indefinitely, one thing that I think has gotten a bit lost is the context in which this order comes. Well before there was this order, well before he was elected president, the world has been in the grips of what's really a global refugee crisis, a crisis that is destabilizing the Middle East, destabilizing much of Europe, and a crisis that if America turns its back on it, creates very different kinds of threats. It doesn't go away just because we have slammed our doors. And I think that to understand not just why Trump's order is, and I think it is, cruel, but also why it is probably unwise. It's pretty important to understand that context in which it comes. So I'm grateful that David Miliband has agreed to be on the show today. David Miliband is Britain's former foreign secretary. He's a member of parliament, a member of the, the government's leadership team. But he is more recently the head of the International Rescue Committee. Uh, the International Rescue Committee was founded in part by Albert Einstein to deal in very large part on refugee issues. It operates in, 40, in more than 40 countries and 22 U.S. cities. It resettles refugees, helps them become self-sufficient. They do amazing work and they are more experienced and have farther reach on this issue than virtually any other non-government organization out there. So he knows this stuff backwards and forwards. And I think in this interview is able to give a very, very helpful global context, global perspective on it, and also perspective on the specifics of how resettlement works in the US, how we actually do vet people and what specifically happens when we do. How do we choose which people come here? What happens when they come here? And how are folks here who the IRC is working with reacting to the refugee ban? So my hope is this conversation will give you both some context for what's going on globally around this issue and also a little bit more of the human perspective of the people this is affecting and what they were coming from, why they're here, why we chose to bring them here and what is happening to them now. So without further ado, here's David Miliband. David Miliband, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ezra. It's great to be with you. It's great to have you, and, and I appreciate you being here on what I know is a very intense week. So what, what I'd love to start by doing, people are very focused on Donald Trump's executive order concerning refugees and immigration, and it comes in a context that I think has gotten probably less attention than it deserves, which is, I think, what it's fair to call a global refugee crisis. So I'd like you to explain this context to me as you would have two weeks ago, without reference to Trump's order. What, what would you have said to somebody who asked you, what is happening here two weeks ago? 
I would have said that there is a global crisis of refugees and people who are forced from their homes by violence but are not yet out of their own country. So this is a crisis of forced displacement. Refugees are one example of that, 25 million refugees around the world, and notably from Syria, but also from Afghanistan, from South Sudan, from Somalia, from Burma, Myanmar, but also 40 million people displaced within their own countries. They're called in the jargon internally displaced people because they haven't yet crossed national borders. And they're in places like Nigeria, northeast Nigeria, two and a half million people chased from their homes by Boko Haram. And of course, within Syria itself, there are seven million internally displaced, homeless in other words, as well as five million refugees. And so this crisis now afflicts one in every 110 people on the planet. Uh, Last year, every 24 seconds, there was someone further displaced from their home by conflict. And the real kicker is that less than 1% of the world's refugees went home last year. So this is a problem that is accumulating, that is growing. And that's what explains this 25 million figure for the number of refugees around the world, the 65 million figure for the number of internally displaced people. And so you're right to think of a global refugee crisis alongside a a global crisis of uh, displacement within countries that are consumed by war. Give me a sense of magnitude here over time. Are the numbers we're seeing right now different than the numbers we saw 10 years ago? Yes. I mean, the numbers have been recorded properly since the Second World War. The UN Convention on Refugees was signed in 1951. The U.S. Refugee Act of 1980 put it into U.S. law. And it said that anyone who has a well-founded fear of persecution was the language that was originally used. It's become interpreted to mean anyone who has a well-founded fear for their own safety should be treated as a refugee if they cross national borders. And the numbers have uh, risen and fallen. I mean, if you think about the 90s, the awful tragedies of Rwanda and of the Balkans pushed up refugee numbers. But compared uh, to 10 years ago, we're now at record-breaking levels, especially for those uh, displaced within their own countries, but also uh, for refugees as well. And this is probably doubly paradoxical because if you think about it, there aren't any wars between states at the moment. This is a time when the state system may be weak, but it is not a feature of the modern international relations environment that there are countries at war with each other. What we have is a series of old wars in places like Afghanistan, old civil wars in places like Afghanistan, Somalia, Congo that continue to burn, and new wars in Syria or South Sudan that are adding to the toll of misery. And so this is a record-breaking situation, and it's a global problem because what we've learned in the last two or three years is that in the modern world, when humanitarian problems are not addressed, people will move. And the the so-called European refugee crisis of 2015, when a million people arrived in Europe, uh, essentially from the Middle East, and last year about 350,000 arrived through North Africa, what happens is if people have no hope in the places that they first flee to, then they will flee further. And that's why in an interconnected world, we have to see this as a genuinely global problem that needs global attention. Well, that's an interesting point you made there, that this is not coming at a time when a lot of states are at war with each other. And what I find interesting about it is that my impression from talking to experts is that when you speak to people about what are the threats to states and what are the threats to the stability, frankly, of regions right now, 
one of the first things they will tell you is the refugee crisis that we're talking in America. In, I think that President Obama intended to have about 110,000 refugees settled over the next year, over this year. And meanwhile, Turkey has a million, two million refugees who are now in it. Oh, more than that, more than that, Ezra. Look, this is such an important point. And I'm glad you make it because in America, there's uh, rightly, in my view, and we'll come to that, enormous angst and fuss about the announcements the president has made in Europe. And, you know, in the UK, to take that as an example, huge media coverage of 9,000 people in the Calais so-called jungle, lots of dramatic headlines about a European refugee crisis. Just let me give you the numbers. Turkey, 2.7 million refugees, admittedly in a country of 80 million people. Lebanon, a country of 6 million people, has 1.5 million refugees. Jordan, the second closest ally of the United States in the Middle East, country of 7.5 million people, 650,000 registered refugees, and the government says 650,000 unregistered refugees. Still a couple of million Afghan refugees in Pakistan. In total, it's poor and lower middle income countries that host about 85% of the world's refugees. It's not a burden, so-called, predominantly borne by the rich world. It's a, a load that is taken by poor and lower middle income countries. And frankly, the destabilization that you speak of is occurring because these countries are finding it difficult to cope. And unemployment rates in Jordan or in Kenya are very high. They're in the 20-25% range. And so the refugee population that arrives, 600,000 mainly Somalis in, in Kenya, is a very, very serious strain on the stability of those societies. And that to me is, a, is an important point that I'd love to hear expand on in, in a particular way. What is the context for this conversation in America is a sense of threat, a sense of what can harm both American health and life and also American interests around the world in the long term. And one version of that story, the, the version Trump is emphasizing, and, and we can talk about the legitimacy of this argument, but, but for now, the version he is emphasizing is the idea that somebody might come here and do harm. But the version that I hear more often when I talk to foreign policy experts is the fear of what happens if... Turkey or Jordan collapse under the pressure of this refugee crisis of what happens if the European Union begins to tear itself apart because the refugee flow dissolves the bonds of fraternity there and but just puts too much pressure, particularly on the social services of poor countries like Greece and Hungary. And this to me is the thing that has really been lost in, in the American conversation. If we slam our doors on this crisis, it doesn't mean the crisis goes away and it doesn't mean the threat goes away. What it really means is that the threat we face, which it, it seems to me is a, a, a harder one to deal with if we in fact get to that point, is the threat of a further destabilized Middle East, of a place where Turkey or Jordan can become a more failed state, of a place where the European Union is thrown into more chaos. And those once set into motion, I fear would be harder problems for us to handle. Well, I, I would say you don't need to choose between the two arguments. We should say, first of all, it's a myth that refugees are able to flood into America without being vetted. Look, I run a humanitarian agency working in 30 countries abroad, working in the U.S. in refugee resettlement. I'm perfectly happy to stand up for good vetting of refugees. I'm in favor of good vetting. I'm not against it. But it's a myth to believe that refugees aren't vetted. I won't go into it in detail, but just uh, very briefly. Well, I'm going I'm to put, put a pin in because I'm going to want to go into that in detail. But, but, okay. but let's do this point and then we'll do that. Okay. So... We don't need to choose between these two arguments. We should expose the myth that refugees can flow into this country without proper vetting. They are properly vetted. But let's also make the absolutely correct argument that you have 
highlighted that friends and allies around the world, remember Turkey is a member of NATO, Europe you've uh, mentioned as well, countries like Kenya or Nigeria, the Nigeria is the largest country in Africa. They are subject to massive destabilization that is against American interests as well as violating American moral standards not to give decent dignity to refugees. And I always remind people, when John Kennedy set up the USAID in 1961, he did so with the argument that it befits America and it benefits America to have an effective foreign aid program. In other words, the values piece and the interest piece go together. And it's certainly dangerous for Americans to face destabilization in areas around the world where they've got interests. It's doubly dangerous for the word to go out as a propaganda gift to extremists who would do America harm, that America is shutting its door to Muslim communities around the world, because that is a recruiting sergeant for extremism. One thing that I think is is important to talk through, and this is a place where, uh, admittedly, I actually feel on, on much less solid ground myself. I think it would be fair for a listener listening to this conversation to say, well, then what, what the hell are you saying is a solution that all these people are going to come here, that it's going to be 500,000, it's going to be a million people who come here? How are we going to handle that? So what, in your view, are, aside from resettlement, where I think we can certainly do more, but we certainly cannot absorb the entirety of the problem just by resettling, if you were worried about this problem, what would be the priorities that you would rank for solutions or for addressing it at the very least? Well, most people are in poor and lower middle income countries, as I said, and uh, that's where most of the refugees are going to have to be uh, helped. Refugee resettlement, just in parentheses, is substantively important for the most vulnerable cases, and it's symbolically important uh, as a show of support for those countries that are bearing the greatest load. But in those countries like Jordan and Lebanon, like Kenya and Ethiopia, I think we have to move to a whole new model of refugee support. Essentially, we have to end the fiction that refugees in those countries are a short-term nuisance who have to be helped to survive before they go home. As I said earlier, less than 1% of the world's refugees went home last year. And so we need a whole new model of how refugees in countries like Kenya and Ethiopia, in countries like Lebanon and Jordan, are able to integrate into the local community, earn a living, get their kids an education. Less than 2% of global humanitarian aid goes on education at the moment, which is a, an own goal of tremendous proportions. And we have to establish and support those countries that are delivering the global public good of hosting uh, refugees. There's actually a good example of what should be done in Uganda, where Uganda offers a right to work to all refugees. It gives land, it gives the offer of land to refugees who arrive. There are 800,000 refugees in uh, Uganda uh, from uh, South Sudan and elsewhere. And the evidence shows that I think less than 20% require any form of humanitarian aid, and only 1% are completely dependent on humanitarian aid. So it is possible, even in a relatively poor country, if you get the right international support, if you have the right enlightened government policy to provide for support and independence that's economically beneficial to the refugees and the host populations. And the conditions that would enable that are not just higher levels and more effective levels of international humanitarian aid, but also a World Bank system that supports fragile states that are hosting large numbers of refugees. Let's talk a bit about the, the refugee experience itself. And I guess let's begin where the refugees are. What is a refugee camp like? If we were to go to one of the main centers of refugee settlement in Jordan, what would we see? Well, the first thing to say, and I hope this doesn't sound pedantic, is that most refugees are not in camps. So if you ask me to 
show the typical refugee experience, I'd say, look, 59% of the world's refugees are in urban or peri-urban areas, not in camps. And so I would take you to the Bekaa Valley. I would take you to Beirut. I would take you to Istanbul. Uh, I would take you to Nairobi. And I would show you people who are reliant on friends or cousins for accommodation or who are squatting in Lebanon in half-built houses, uh, blocks of flats, blocks of apartments in uh, the cities. I'd show you people who are part registered and half of them getting some kind of support from the UN or the wider international system. I'd show you people who are working in the informal economy and often sending their kids to work in the informal economy. I'd show you people who don't dare really allow their teenage girls to go to school because they're worried about their safety. And I'd show you people who, tragically, the the image that comes to mind is they only smile when you say to them, I'm thinking of Syrian refugees, when you say to them, do you think you'll ever go home? And they smile and they say, alhamdulillah, God willing, I will uh, end up going home. And so it's an experience where human dignity is under extraordinary assault, uh, where the human survival instinct is on incredible display but where human spirit is still evident. I actually want to stop there because clearly I have a lot of misconceptions about this myself. Tell me who flees, who, because I I know there's both a question for refugees of what are you fleeing from, but also what capacity do you have to leave? And you mentioned here having family ties elsewhere. I assume there is a bias towards being able to the money to get papers or fake papers to get transport through dangerous areas. When you look at the refugee population, how does it differ from perhaps a population that would like to leave wherever the, the source country is? I think it's, it's hard to generalize, but a couple of points do seem evident. First of all, uh, the middle classes often leave first. Secondly, the able-bodied leave before the old. And uh, thirdly, uh, those with most to lose often cling on to the end until they lose everything. I I met a man uh, last week in Silver Spring, Maryland, who's made it here a Syrian refugee. I mean, his bakery, he was a baklava chef in Damascus and his, in Greater Damascus, and his bakery was bombed. And so he had nothing left to lose, so he left. And what you see is is the combination of fear on the one hand and ability on the other uh, that drives people out. One thing that is also striking to me from from what I've read in this, I was reading the UN put out a great report in 2015 on the refugee crisis. And one of the numbers that has really stuck with me from it is at 51%, I think it was, are children? Yes, I think this is a really important point. And I don't want to obsess about the U.S. situation at all, but just to give you the the, the figure for under-14s in the Syrian population who've so far arrived in the U.S. as refugees, it's 47%. So nearly half are under the age of 14. The overall numbers of kids speak to the demographics of the regions that we are talking about. Remember, uh, practically half the Arab world is under the age of 18. And so the population bulge is very much among the young. But people go with their kids. Often it's the parents and the grandparents who get left. Not universally so, but you're right to say that there's a very high percentage of kids in the population. And that's what makes it doubly tragic that when refugees do make it to the neighboring states or onto the transit routes or into Europe, less than 2% of the humanitarian aid system is on education. I mean, that's the biggest indicator that uh, there's a warped sense of priorities and a failure to think in anything beyond the short term. 
because obviously many of the refugees themselves have given up hope for their own lives, but they're desperate to give their kids a chance to live a proper life. And the fact that in states that enable there are 200,000 Syrian kids in Lebanon who are getting no education. And Lebanon is not a country at war. It's a country where the combination of the national government and the international institutions have not given proper priority or effective operational support for, for an education system that can help those people. We are talking confidently about numbers in a way that would almost, I think, make you think that what happens is you leave and then you go into your local UN refugee office and you mark down a form and, and, and you get counted. Now, obviously, some people, as you mentioned, they go stay with family. Some people go into urban areas. Some people end up in these very, very large refugee camps. When you leave, what happens? What are the kinds of things if you're in Syria or you're in Afghanistan and you realize you have to be out of there in a week or you have to be out of there in a month? It has gotten too dangerous. What is a typical story of what happens next and to what degree are there governmental authorities involved? Well, you're you're not a million miles from the truth in what you said, which is that you're on your own until you get to the border, the border of Syria with Lebanon, Turkey, uh, Iraq, Jordan. You're on your own until you get to the border of Afghanistan. You you go across the border if you've got the appropriate papers. And until recently, for example, the Lebanon Syria border has been very open, the Turkey-Syria border very open. Once you get across, you do seek out the uh, local UN office because that's where you can register. And the registration is important. It's increasingly biometric registration, fingerprints, iris scans, which is important for later down the chain when the security questions get asked. And you try to then find some sort of semi-permanent accommodation. It might be in a tented settlement. Uh, it might be squatting or staying with friends. It might be in – there are refugee camps, although it's not the majority experience. There are more prevalent refugee camps in Africa, uh, in, in Lebanon, for example, for obvious reasons, given the Palestinian experience of refugee camps, that the Lebanese don't want to set up new refugee camps. But there are, there's a refugee camp of 330,000 people in eastern Kenya. It's the world's largest refugee camp. It's called Dadaab. And so once you're registered, you're then entitled to a range of health services. Sometimes you get some food distribution. Sometimes in, in, in some lucky cases, there is cash distribution, which is increasingly where the global humanitarian system should go to empower people who are refugees. And so your description of then what happens, it sort of stopped. What happens is then you, you, you sit and you think, how on earth can I, first of all, make ends meet? And then where am I going to go to remake my life? And the tragedy is that very large numbers of the 25 million refugees are stuck in limbo. Uh, that's most obviously the case for those who've made it to Greece, 45,000 in Greece who, are, who, who aren't going to stay forever in Greece but aren't wanted in the rest of northern Europe. But it's also the case for very large numbers of people uh, across Africa and the Middle East who simply don't know where they'll be in two or three years' time. So we've talked about the size of this population. In the Obama years, you've been dealing with 50,000, 65,000, and it was going to be on its way up to 100, 110,000 refugees settled in the United States. How is it chosen who came here? But before the question of vetting, how did we decide who got that ticket? America chooses from a pool that's created by the UN, and the pool is determined on the basis of vulnerability. Vulnerability because of widowhood or orphan status, uh, vulnerability because of medical need, uh, vulnerability including mental health as well as uh, physical health, vulnerability because of trauma, vulnerability because of uh, poverty. And the truth is there are many, many, many more people who fit the bill 
than there are places. Now, obviously, for the U.S., it's historically given a very high uh, priority to political dissidents. The IRC has resettled 62,000 people from Cuba uh, over the last uh, 60 years. But it's not the case that religious persecution uh, has somehow been downgraded uh, or um, religious persecution has not been recognized. 30 to 40 percent of the people coming from Iraq at the moment are actually Iraqi Christians, an Iranian Christian I met last week uh, when I went on my visit to Silver Spring in Maryland. And so uh, those who are victims of political persecution are recognized. Those who are victims of religious persecution are recognized. And those who are in a state of high vulnerability for medical or other needs are also recognized. So then what? And I think it's very important to be precise here. The, The argument that Donald Trump and the Trump administration have made is not that refugee resettlement is bad in and of itself or that it should be permanently ended even from these seven countries. The argument they have made is that America is not in any serious way vetting the people who it brings in and there needs to be a pause while a more consistent, comprehensive, serious vetting program is constructed. And I've talked to people who what they have taken from this is either just that we're banning refugees or that at least currently we are not doing any vetting at all. Could you walk through in – you had said not to go into the weeds on this, but I actually would like you to go into detail on this. If you are someone being considered for resettlement in the U.S., what is the vetting process as it currently stands? Okay, happy to answer that. Just for the sake of full accuracy, it's the case that although the seven countries that you mentioned uh, have a pause on refugee arrivals for Syrians, it's uh, an indefinite ban on refugee arrivals for Syrians, which is particularly damaging given it's the largest refugee population in the world. But in respect of the uh, vetting, the myth is that there's no vetting at all. The truth is that after the UN first interview and identify vulnerable people who might qualify as refugees, the US then is able to pick and choose which refugees it wants to admit. Because obviously there are many more who want to come here than are able to do so. And it does so through a process that involves 12 to 15 government departments that involves successive interviews by different staff from the Department of Homeland Security, that involves biometric testing to ensure that the people are who they say they are and they they pass various tests, and it involves deep scrutiny of the papers that people have. And often there's an argument made that says, well, how can we even trust the papers? What a nonsense to to believe that people from Syria would have the cooperation of the Assad government. It's not about that. First of all, people have their own papers. But second and most important, the U.S. can decide what papers it wants and what it's willing to take as proof, because the burden of proof uh, lies on the refugee to show not just that they are who they say they are, but that they will become productive and uh, patriotic people in the country. And so the vetting process involves a dozen or so steps even after the U.N. have created a pool of people for the U.S. to choose from. And I always say to people, it's good for the refugee vetting system to be kept up to date. Obviously, as biometric technology has developed over the last five years, that's been brought in. And if the administration had said, look, we want to review the vetting process, and we're going to do so over 90 days or 120 days, and we're going to keep the current system running, we would have had none of the chaos that's emerged or the outrage, that's sadness and outrage that we've seen over the last week. Is there low-hanging fruit in the vetting process? If, if you were talking to somebody who really was afraid of this, if you were talking to somebody who felt it did need to be strengthened, 
Is there a recommendation set or a group of things you could do that conceptually, if you were if you were actually just trying to improve the vet, that would be effective and not just a backdoor way of constraining the flow of refugees? I mean, that's a hard question to answer because the government don't give away all the details of what happens at every step, which database is compared with uh, which. But the short answer is that there's no obvious easy addition to the current system because it is so comprehensive. Remember, it takes an average of 18 months. It takes up to 36 months for a refugee to wind their way through the system. This isn't an area where the public sector has failed to keep pace with technology or the public sector has been somehow inefficient or inert. It's a process that's been poured over for perfectly understandable reasons since 9-11. And it has enhanced processes for people from countries that have been the origin of terrorism. And that's why successive Homeland Security Secretaries from the Bush administration and from the Obama administration, never mind dozens and dozens of national security officials from CIA directors down, have said, look, we have faith in the refugee vetting system. It's harder to get to the U.S. as a refugee than through any other route. Uh, There already is extreme vetting, in other words. So I am not a fan of the Trump administration's executive order. But what I want to do here is try to present the argument for it in, I think, the way that is most faithful to what they are actually thinking and and, and get your response on it. So the first step of this argument that people have been taking seriously is the idea that we are under some imminent current threat from, from refugees. And people have been pointing out, look, there has not been a successful terrorist attack from any refugee from any of the seven affected countries yet. So there, there is something ridiculous about this. We even put up a piece on Vox showing correctly, you are under more danger of being killed by your own clothing than thus far a refugee from one of these places because your, your clothing, it does catch on fire. So, okay, so that isn't a very good argument. But if you listen to what Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller are really saying, if you go to their background briefings, if you if you hear them out, the argument goes something like this. And and in this way, I think it is much more Islamophobic than people are, are letting on. But it is also based on something that you can understand a bit better. What they're saying is they are afraid of creating the kinds of Muslim communities in the U.S. that they believe they see in Europe, that they talk about not wanting to have a situation in America where in 20 or 30 years you have, uh, again, and I want to be careful about how I frame this, what they think you have in Europe, which is a world in which attacks from radicalized Islamic terrorists are becoming more of a norm. Things like what you've seen more recently in France, occasionally even in Britain. Now, obviously, people may or may not have picked up on this from, from your speech patterns, but you are European. And I would be curious to hear how you think about that argument, because I think that my understanding is that internally in the Trump administration, this is the argument they are making. Well, I am a great believer in taking the high point of people's arguments, not the low point. And so I run a nonpartisan humanitarian organization. We deliberately didn't come out blasting the administration before the executive order was uh, published. We wait and see what the policies are, and then we try and engage with them. The best way of answering your point, I think, is to say, first, American Muslim communities are much more integrated into this society than uh, the norm in significant parts of Europe. I mean, I don't want to say all of Europe. Remember, London's got a Muslim mayor. There's all sorts of good practice across Europe. But the norm is American 
approach to Muslim integration, just like Jewish integration, just like Italian integration, has been more successful in many ways than Europeans. And one evidence of that is 3,500 Muslims in the U.S. Uh, military. So the first point is that America has shown how effective Muslim integration or integration generally uh, can be uh, done. Uh, secondly, I think that at the core of that is that the American experience shows that the path to citizenship is a vital part of building patriotic as well as productive citizens. In the U.S. refugee resettlement system, you can get a green card after a year. You're allowed to work immediately, but you can get a green card after a year, and you can get a citizenship agreement after five years. But you're, you, you obviously get to go through the hoops. You've got to go through the process, but it does mean that you have to in, remain engaged with the federal administration. That's been an important part of American success. And so to the extent that aspects of the European experience have been a nightmare, there is no reason for to believe that America needs to follow down the American, down the European road. And that's why, in a way, some of the most dangerous aspects of this executive order are not just the propaganda gift to ISIS and al-Qaeda around the world in the Middle East. They're also the message that it sends to well-integrated, patriotic Muslim communities in the U.S. And it's incredibly moving to hear people in America, American citizens and American residents who are Muslim, talk about their patriotism and their commitment to this country and their fear that this will be used, this order will be used not just to question their patriotism, but to undermine the integration of the American, at the heart of the American experience. And so I think it is important to take the argument seriously. It is important to recognize that integration doesn't happen by accident. It happens through deliberate design. But it's also important to say that by the blessings of geography, America is able to choose which Muslim communities it wants to admit, and it has a good record of integrating them successfully. So I want to linger for a minute on, on something you just talked about. There's much I find, I'm Jewish, this policy was released over the weekend of National Holocaust Remembrance. I think it's always good for me to be transparent with the audience. I find this policy morally abhorrent. I am, I am heartbroken over it. But that said, there is a, a policy concern I have of it around it that is that is a bit separate, which is... While all this was going on, there was a shooting in Quebec. It was a white nationalist who killed six people. People immediately noted that is more people than refugees from any of these communities, any of these countries have killed in America, which was in some ways a, a snarky, you know, sharp point. But the Trump administration immediately used it as justification for their policy. See, that that's what we can't have happen here. Now, what, what we're seeing here, you talk a lot about the propaganda gift it gives to ISIS, it gives to Al-Qaeda. There are communities of folks in America who are more radicalized, maybe not at the level of violence or weren't at the level of violence, but this is the kind of thing that pushes people towards more radicalization, a feeling of discrimination, a feeling of, of, of being hated, of being rejected. And whether it comes from abroad or whether it comes domestically, it is often the case that highly discriminatory regimes exist in a symbiotic relationship with those they've branded as the enemy. And the idea that you can radicalize or help ISIS radicalize more people, and then when there is an attack, use that attack as further proof that this radicalizing policy was necessary all along, puts you in a, a very vicious cycle a cycle that really disrupts the ability to have integrated, as you note, integrated communities and doesn't create an obvious way out. I think that your 
fear is very well argued and very well merited. Uh, that's why, yes, there's been outrage on the streets and at the airports over the last week, but I think there's also been deep sadness, deep sadness, and maybe it takes a foreigner to recognize this, deep sadness that something core to American identity seems to be, and by, on a bipartisan basis, is now under threat, but also fear of the kind you described, not fear of refugees, but fear of a debilitating cycle of uh, a radicalism feeding radicalism. And I think it's right to be worried about that. The essence of a lot of politics is that we should blame our problems, not on ourselves, but on others. And this refugee issue, the migration issue that's related but is distinct, and, and we've kept it distinct in this conversation, uh, is at the heart of that. And that's why I think it's right to see the stakes as being very high in this uh, debate and in this discussion. And it's why it's very important that it takes place in a way that takes seriously the fears of those who are worried about what they hear or read of uh, Islamic terrorism and shows how the refugee system is actually part of combating it rather than fueling it. I'm curious to hear you say, and, and, and obviously your background is, is in politics, more about that comment or maybe about the flip side of your comment about the essence of politics being blaming one's problems on others. Because there is a way in which the essence, I think, of humanism is collapsing the moral difference between you and others, collapsing the idea between your family and people who are not your family, your people who are not your family, but are your countrymen and people who are not your family and not your countrymen. And one thing that I see happening in America, but also certainly been happening in Europe in recent years and has happened over and over and over again throughout human political and non-political history is we are moving in a very dehumanizing direction. And again, I'm not in any way trying to imperil your nonpartisan credentials here, but there can be a tendency in America right now for, for Trump to talk about minority communities by using a the in front of them, the African-Americans, the Muslims. And we keep talking about refugees, and that's correct. That's the, the technical word for them. But I, I do think it has this quality of calling to mind, huddled streams of people. There are a lot of ads like this actually during the campaign. And I'm curious, drawing a little bit on your political background, how you think about creating a political discourse that is a little more robust to that kind of othering or that is able in some ways to push against people's instinct to fear folks that maybe they don't have direct experience with and maybe they don't, they don't directly understand and who maybe represent something or can be made to represent something that scares them. I think it's a great point and I've got lots to say about it and I'm not sure how coherent it's going to be. But first of all, the question of whether you need to love your neighbor or love your love a stranger is not a new question. I don't need to remind you. I'm Jewish too, like you, um, although I'm not uh, religious myself. And the question of whether you have an injunction to love people who are, you, are like you and uh, share the same fate by being members of your community or whether you're enjoined to love people who are different from you and are in different communities is the oldest question uh, of all. And it is coming back to becoming today's question because so much of the 21st century is going to be determined by whether or not we learn how to work with and love, in quotes, strangers, uh, as well as loving uh, neighbors. The second thing I would say 
is that you use the word dehumanization just in passing, and I think it's really important. Stalin said that one person's death is a tragedy and a million people's death is a statistic. And the danger is that 25 million people's flight is just a very large statistic. And that dehumanization, I think, is really dangerous and really important. And the most tragic thing that people say to me in my three years in New York is to say, yeah, you're, you're right, uh, this is a really big issue, but in fact, the issue is so big, I don't think I can make a dent, so I'm going to go off and uh, fund a hospital instead. And that is something that I think is really dangerous and we need to really watch again because it's a, it's a disempowerment that I think has dangerous consequences. The third and final thing I would say is that if you think about it, politics used to involve blaming the other side. It used to involve saying, well, in, in my country, it would be Labour people saying, well, all the problems are the Conservatives and you should vote Labour. In this country, it was you know, the Democrats saying the problems are the Republicans. That still happens, obviously. Uh, but I think there's also uh, this point that it's potent to blame others from outside your country and or to blame outside forces. And that's something that comes and goes in politics. But I think it speaks to a number of things, one of which is that we're living at a time when centre-right and centre-left have very hard questions to answer about how they, their policy programmes and their values can be turned into real change in real people's lives. And I think that there is a, there is a real political vacuum on the centre-left and on the centre-right, and that's something that is contributing to the potency of this uh, dehumanizing and this blame game that is so dangerous. What have you heard from refugees in the aftermath of this? What has been their emotional reaction to, to what has been going on? I think that above all, it's incomprehension. It's, it's just almost it's disbelief better rather than incomprehension. I mean, the most tragic case is half the families here and half the families in the Middle East. We've actually got a case that we're dealing with a number of cases that are like that. And this is a, you know, a husband separated from the wife. The wife's got the ticket literally booked for the 7th of February. And she gets told over the weekend, you and your kids can't come and join your husband in New York. And she's, there's a house she was renting. I mean, it's an, a, a nightmare. And I think people are above, it's, it's almost like they've been punched in the solar plexus. It's disbelief that this could have happened. What, what do you mean? I was given a visa by the State Department. I booked my airline ticket. And now you're saying I can't come? And because these are Syrian, the prospect is that they'll never come. It's just sheer disbelief that this could happen in America. And that, I think, is the overwhelming uh, feeling that has come through, both from the refugees who are here and the, the 60,000 who've been through the vetting process and are around the world. I want to linger uh, on that case for, for one minute. So you're describing the case of someone who they've already been cleared to settle here. The husband of the family is here. The wife, just for whatever reason, had to take it. And, and so she is going to sleep tonight, where given the text of the order, the likely outcome is that indefinitely for the foreseeable future, however long that future is, she cannot come. She cannot be. I mean, I guess her husband could leave and never come back, but she cannot come and be here and inhabit the life that she either was about to begin or in many cases, I think, had already been been living. And and as far as we know, because I'm sure you, you all are in touch with the folks implementing these orders, as far as we know, there is no change currently 
planned for people like that. There's nothing about the stories that have been heard, about the tales that have been told, about the people they've seen interviewed on the news that has changed the nature of this order for folks in that case. They've changed the order for green card holders, but not not for people who are refugees who are about to be resettled. That's right, with one extra proviso that makes it doubly worse. And this case that I was describing to you, which is not the only one, the husband is here as a refugee because he had worked with American forces. So that is the danger. So there are, there are cases where there are Iraqis who are here who serve with American forces who are separated from their families. Um, they don't know what their future is. And there are cases, that's the February 7th case, there are cases where there are Syrians who are separated and will and don't know whether they'll ever be able to make it here. I, I want to be respectful of your time because you actually have to get back to working on this crisis. But if, if people are hearing this and, and putting aside the politics, putting aside what happens with the order and, and they want to help the people involved, how can people be involved in a productive way to, to help the refugees themselves? The ones coming here and the ones not. Yeah, I'm really pleased that you asked me that because I said that there's this sense of it being such a large problem, how much difference can people make? And the truth is that they can uh, make a difference. The IRC, the International Rescue Committee, is in an unusual position because we're both an international humanitarian aid organization working in war zones and fragile states, but we're also a refugee resettlement agency. So I can say in 29 U.S. cities, there are refugees who need mentors. They need English language support. They need buddies who can help their kids through the schooling system. System. And if your listeners go to the rescue.org website, they can see where we are across the U.S., uh, not just on the coast, but in middle America as well. And they can volunteer and support what we do locally with refugees. Secondly, there will be people listening to this who have skills themselves or whose companies um, have the ability to hire refugees who are arriving. We have a good program, an employment program, which gets 80% of refugees into work within six months of arriving. That's the best route to integration. And we'd love to have compacts and partnerships with uh, employers. Uh, the third thing that we need as a NGO, uh, which is funded to deliver programs, but too often not funded to exist, uh, we don't have funding for our infrastructure, is that there will be people who are running HR departments, human resources departments. There'll be people who are running IT departments. There'll be people who are running legal departments who want to offer pro bono help. And by the way, that um, support can be for our programs here in the U.S. or can be for our global programs. And the final thing is I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't say, look, we're an NGO that is 15% dependent on private donations. And we've had to launch for the first time in our 80-year history since Albert Einstein founded the IRC in 1933. We've had to launch a an emergency appeal, not for famine and war around the world, but, for, but to protect the services that we offer here in the U.S. And I would love people who are listening to this and they're interested by it to visit rescue.org and become financial supporters as well. David Milben, thank you for the work you're doing and thank you for being here. Thank you very much, Ezra. Thank you to David Miliband for being here. This is a very, very intense period for his organization, so I'm grateful for the time he took. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and we'll be back normal time, normal schedule next week.